Jewish audio on Chabad.org. This part is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad of Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Mishnah Dalit, fifth chapter, the fourth Mishnah. We're going to start this today. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. Once again, the number ten looms large. Hatar Nisim Nasal Aveseinu B'Mitzrayim. Ten miracles happened to our ancestors in the land of Egypt. Vasara al Hayam, and ten miracles happened at the sea. That sea is what the world calls the Red Sea, but more accurately it's referred to as the Reed Sea. And that's what's called in Hebrew, a Yam Suf. Yam Suf is the Reed Sea, because there are many marshes along this particular ocean, this particular part of the sea, and there are many reeds that grow there. So there were ten miracles in Egypt proper, and ten miracles outside of Egypt proper on the sea. Esther Makos Hevi HaKadosh Baruch Hu Al HaMitzriyim Ten Makos God Ten plagues God brought upon the Egyptians The Mitzrayim In the land of Egypt itself The Eser Al Hayom And ten On the sea That's the first half of the Mishnah The next half of the Mishnah Talks about the Jewish people In the desert And I, I, I want to focus on the first Half of the Mishnah First things first Let's try to talk a little bit about just what it is before we try to understand how this makes any sense. What does it mean that ten miracles happened to our ancestors? Do you remember reading in the Haggadah about ten miracles? What ten miracles happened to the Jewish people? Which ten miracles? So the Bartonura says the ten miracles are that they were saved from the ten plagues. So there were ten plagues and the Jewish people were saved. And being saved from ten plagues equals ten miracles. They were all directed against the Egyptian people. And not a single one of them affected the Jewish people. So therefore we say ten miracles happened to the Jewish people in Mitzrayim. Asara al Hayam, ten on the sea. Now we're going to find out that the splitting of the sea was actually a very, very detailed operation. It wasn't a simple open shut. The people who made all those movies, if they would have learned this Bartanura, they could have had a much better movie. Because there's a lot more going on than just sea splitting. The Bartanura tells us about ten different miracles. Number one, Vayubakwa Amoyim. The water split open. Whoever heard of something like that? Number two, the water became like a tent. The Jewish people actually were like in these tunnels. So it wasn't two walls of water, but two walls that joined together on top, and they created an enclosure for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people walked into that. As it says in the book of Habakkuk, Nikfas b'maitav reish perazov. Number three, when you empty out the area that was saturated with water, what are you going to get? Mud. Mud. When the marble, the waters of the great flood receded, it took many, many, many weeks until the mud was hard enough to walk on. After a rainstorm, everything is muddy. And yet it says that they walked on dry ground. So the ground becoming dried out 
without any type of clay-like or mud-like quality is a miracle. This says clearly in the scripture, the Jewish people walked on dry land. So much for that low-tide, high-tide theory. They wouldn't get dry land. Number four, Karki is Hayom, the sea, the floor bed, the, the sea, the seabed of, 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 the, of the ocean, which the Egyptians ran after the Jewish people into it. They first ran into those tunnels, by the way. You think they were stupid? They ran into, into an ocean? They ran into a sea that was split. The sea was split for them too. It's just when the last Jew was out, that's when the rest came crashing down. But the Egyptians were in the same Yamsuf. They were riding the same tunnel. They were going through the same sea that was split. One little difference. The same ground that was perfectly dry for the last Jew became perfectly treacherous for the first Egyptian. So miraculously it turned back into clay. Back into mud. And that's why all of their machinery got stuck. All the chariots got stuck in the mud. As it says in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk talks prophetically about going backwards in other words but his, his, his prophetically inspired words talking about what happened at the Yamsuf number five the water that congealed did not congeal as a single entity as one single glass if you will but rather the water when it congealed and became hard the Bartonuru tells us was actually in pieces, like bricks. So it was brickwork. And the brickwork was arranged one on top of the other. As it says in the book of Tehillim, Ata Perarta Buzhayam. Perarta means pieces. It became pieces. The ocean turned into pieces. So there were these pieces all along. Everything was a piecemeal construction. Number six, that the water became hard not only it became hard but it became as hard as stone so not only it wasn't crashing down but it was hard as stone what was so great about that when it crashed down on the Egyptians it wasn't water crashing down on the Egyptians they had a building crash down on them glass bricks came crashing down number seven a lot of people don't know this how many times has the sea split? Not seven. Even more than twelve. Thirteen times. Because everybody had his own pathway to go. If you were from the tribe of Reuven, you went through the Reuven gate. Tribe of Shimon, you went through the Shimon gate. Those who were converts went through the convert gate. But those who didn't have Yichos, didn't have lineage. So every Jew had his place. Thirteen times the sea split. And each Shavit went through. As it says, The sea was cut into ribbons. Plural. Number eight, when the waters hardened, they were actually see-through. So it didn't become op- it, it, it didn't become clouded. It was opaque, as it says that it was like sapphire, like crystal, and like like uh, other precious stones, so that the tribes could see each other. They didn't say, "Oh, what happened to the rest of the people?" They could see the rest of the people. They saw how they were all being saved. And there was a, 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 a grand fire which followed them along. The pillar of fire was still illuminating them when they were in the water because it was coming through the glass. It's coming through the ocean that remained see-through. Number nine, that these waters that had turned into crystals were also at the same time there was still water coming out. As it says, 
that there was mayim that was noizlum. Can need noizlum. So if you wanted a drink, they had a built-in cooler system. And there was actually water coming through. And if they wanted, they didn't want to drink anymore, the water would just stop like a stalactite. Come down, you don't want any more, it stopped. And that final one is the, is the tenth miracle where the water stopped. So it was actually an amazing, amazing experience. A lot of exciting things happened. So now we know that there was ten miracles that happened in the sea, and ten miracles that happened in the Tzayim. And the flip side is that God brought the ten miracles on the Egyptians in the Tzayim, the ten plagues, and God brought the ten different destruction, forms of destruction to the Egyptians when they're in the sea. What were the ten different forms of destruction? So it says they were hurled, and that the, the horse and the rider remained connected. They were being hurled up and down together. Some of them sank immediately. The wicked were able to continue to go. Some of them crashed against hard water. Some of them sank in soft waters. There were all different things going on at the same time. Hashem judged each and every single Egyptian individually when the sea came crashing down until all of Mitzrayim was destroyed. So ask me the question. There's a very obvious question that presents itself right when you learn this mission. No. My question refers to the order of the mission. Tell me what happens first. First I was saved, or first the situation that I had to be saved from presented itself? can't be saved before there's something to save you from. First you have to have a problem and you get saved from the problem. It would make sense to say I ducked and then somebody shot. That's a miracle. Somebody shot and I ducked. So it says that Hashem brought ten miracles. Ten miracles happened to our ancestors in the land of Egypt, the land of Messiah. And ten miracles happened in the sea. Ten makos that Kaddish Baruch Hu brought upon the Mitzrayim in Egypt, and they and they suffered ten times on the sea. So with the sea, this could make sense because the truth is that first the miracles happened to the Jewish people. First the Jewish people walked through the Reed Sea, and they had all these fascinating things of water fountains that were going, and then crystal walls and bricks, and then and, and, and light and tunnels and so on and so forth. And then later, the Egyptians were destroyed in the Reed Sea. However, when it comes to the Makais, when it comes to the plagues, first, the plagues came, ostensibly. And the plagues that came, the Jewish people were saved from them. So why does the Mishnah reverse the order? The Medrash Shmuel asks an interesting question. He says, when we talk about the miracles of the Jewish people, it only says, Asara Nisan Nasalab is saying, ten miracles happened. Ten miracles were performed. Doesn't say who performed this. Ten miracles happened. When it comes to the Egyptians, however, it says, Hey Baruch Hu, God brought this upon them. So he answers, Brought upon them, God brought the the, the, the plagues. Saving, they were saved by default. God brought the plagues. The main thing is God brought the plagues in the Egyptians. That's a very good answer. It makes sense. That's why it says, Hey Baruch Hu. That's why it says God brought the plagues on the Egyptians. But when it comes to the rest of the Jewish people, the Jewish people were saved. Not God saved them. It didn't come to them. But then the order seems all wrong. The order, ostensibly, should have been to talk about plagues. Ten plagues came in Egypt. And the Jewish people were saved from those ten plagues. 
fact that we have it grouped together with the plagues and the reese. Why are they grouped together that way? The simple answer would be that until they crossed the Red Sea, they weren't really free. Because Mitzvah was pursuing them to bring them back to Mitzvah. So we're talking about the whole package. The whole package are 20 miracles. First you have to get out of Mitzvah, and then you have to have Mitzvah destroyed, because as long as your enemies are still around, you're not scot-free. You still have a problem. The Maharal of Prague said a very interesting thing. He said that everything that happened to our ancestors is a paradigm for us today. So he says that there are two challenges to a person of faith. One challenge is logic. Science. It doesn't make sense, your faith. Your belief is illogical. It's irrational. Nothing else has changed. You still hear the same thing from people. You're old-fashioned, you're archaic, you're closed-minded, you're not scientifically enlightened. Guess where that comes from? From Pharaoh. What was the science of those days? Sorcery. It's also a science. The same way today we know how to harness atomic energy, so then they knew how to harness uh, witchcraft, spiritual energy. Why can't you imagine it? Believe me, you, it was harder for people to imagine 3,000 years ago that someday they'd be harnessing atomic energy than it is for us to imagine them harnessing the energy of, 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 of demons and demonology. It's just not in our world today. The world has become rational in a different way. Pharaoh said, what are you worshipping God for? I'll make you a God. You want to see things happen? They had sorcerers. I mentioned this on Shabbos. Why do you think people believed in witchcraft for? Because they were stupid? I remember as a little boy, I don't understand. Avraham Avinu was the only smart guy who knew to break a statue. Everybody else was so stupid. That's what was talking to me in class. The whole world was stupid. And Abraham was the only one who was smart enough. He said, what are you worshipping this dumb statue? Can't even do anything for you. He smashes him and doesn't do anything back. But the whole world was crazy. By the way, there are people who worship statues today. A lot of people. Millions of people. Are they crazy? It's not so simple. You start to do some research. Something called shamism. And they're connecting to spirits. And they actually could see things happen. And some of these people could see the future. And some of these people get inspiration. It's not so simple. It's not as stupid as it sounds. In fact, it's any, not any more stupid than people who worship their own intelligence. Like, like uh, Hitchens or Dawkins or these famous atheists who are writing these bestseller books trashing religion and God. They worship their own mind. So these worship their mind and these worship a piece of wood. It's all man-made. It's all something that's modifying what Hashem gave us. It's all saying that I cannot believe something I can't see at all. The idol I can see. The shame and the spirit I could relate to. The manipulation of physicality I can, I can perform. I believe in a God that I can't see, can't feel, can't talk to. What are you talking about? Why should I do that? Abraham Avinu said it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the God you worship is the God you create. And that the spirit that you can argue with and you can manipulate, that's the spirit that you worship. It doesn't make any sense. That wasn't such a simple thing to say or a simple thing to realize. Because that's what people worship today. So Abraham Avinu had the ability to see past that and to understand that there's something transcendent and beyond our intelligence. But when we're talking about idolaters, we're talking about logic... And rationale, they're not two different worlds. The old division of the Western world, of Aristotelian philosophy, which included, by the way, all these pagan gods and, and the Jewish sages, which was going on in the times of the Mishnah, is still going on today. In the same way, you have people from the Western world, like people from the Western world, who still mock the Jewish religion. They said 2,000 years ago we were old-fashioned. They said 3,000 years ago we would soon disappear. And they're still saying it. 
And we say, soon you'll disappear. And soon you'll be forgotten about, and we'll still be around. Because that's what it's been. So Paroi represented the intellectual challenge to a Jew in believing in God. In living a life of morality and decency that doesn't maybe make sense. Or doesn't add up. It's not logical. The sea represented a very different challenge. It's the challenges of nature. So not the challenge of intelligence or the human mind, but the challenge of a world that seems unfriendly. The challenge of things that happen in the world. The challenge of the world around us, that there are Mayim Rab, there are great waters. Not an intellectual challenge. A plain, simple, everyday challenge. The challenge of the Yetzirah, that I want to do this, that, and then you're telling me it's not kosher. I'm hungry. It's not kosher. What is not kosher? So this represents the challenge of the sea. So the Maral of Prague says a beautiful thing. He says, why do we have these two challenges put together? Because the challenge of Pharaoh and the challenge of the sea are not two different challenges, really. They are two halves of a whole. This is what makes up the challenge. That was the challenge to a Jew then, when a Jew is trying to break free of the shackles of the limitations of the world as we know it, which Mitzrayim is an idiom of the Hebrew word Mitzrayim, which means narrow straits, constraints, being in a tight squeeze place, and the Yid has the ability to rise above it. So what are the Abish to do? Miracles happen. How do we get by this? A miracle means we're lifted above. We're elevated. Just as we got over Pharaoh, we got over the Reed Sea. And just as Pharaoh and his people, Mitzrayim, was dismantled, so everybody was ultimately lost in the Reed Sea as well. But it doesn't really answer the question about the order of the two why we seem to put the miracles that happened to the Jewish people prior to the challenge or the cause, the reason for having a miracle to begin with. So when, when the Rebbe taught this Mishnah, he said something very, very fascinating, very novel, but actually it's, it's so profound that it's almost simple. As we know sometimes the profoundest things are the most obvious things that nobody ever thinks of. And that explains the order of the Mishnah, and it will also give us a deeper appreciation into both what the Nedrish Shmuel says and what the Maral of Prague says. Choose a plague. Choose a plague. Which, any of the plagues. Okay, Makat Bacholot. What happened to Makat Bacholot? How do we understand this thing that all the firstborns died? There's not really a good scientific way to do it. Because even the scientists who created their understanding of the plague is never really figured out that first one it wasn't really the firstborn it was just a plague it was really the, a plague where the firstborn died so let me use the language of Torah there was a mashchit a mashchit is a destroyer and the destroyer went on a mission and his mission was to harvest souls to harvest to go claim lives all over the place so where were the Jewish people when the mashchit went out when the destroying force that claimed all these lives went out where were the Jewish people in their homes and what, what did they do outside of their homes they put blood now do you, know, do you remember what it says in the scripture don't go outside of your house because there's a mashkis in the street but you know the interesting thing was that even when an Egyptian came to hide in the Jewish house he was still struck down and if a Jew happened not to be at home he was still safe so from the very fact that you have to be in a protective zone at the same time, the fact that the protective zone didn't necessarily work full, in a foolproof manner for everybody, only for the ones who were supposed to work, what does that tell you? 
That tells you when the mashkis, when the destroying force is set loose, who's in danger? Everybody's in danger. Everybody's in danger. When you set a force loose, then you are putting yourself in a dangerous position. You don't know where that force is going to go. Everybody knows the story of uh, Frankenstein? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they create this monster, then the monster takes over. You want to know what the modern story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is? The United States and Great Britain created a monster called Osama bin Laden. And they created this monster, this Frankenstein, so he should fight the Soviets. But what was the problem? The problem was when he finished taking the training and the money from the United States and he finished destroying the Soviet Union, he turned his guns on the people he got them from. Nobody likes to talk about this. But Hamas was created secretly by Israel. Israel was propping up these Arab terrorists to try to create a counterbalance to Yasser Arafat. Stupidest thing they ever did. Most murderous thing they ever did. A disaster. So you create a monster. That's how he has. Now, of course, Hashem doesn't have our limitations. But the point I'm trying to make is that when a destructive force is let loose, where will that destructive force go? And who will that destructive force hurt? If a destructive force is let loose, a destructive force is let loose. Okay, a miracle. God decided there's going to be millions of frogs, or as some people claim with crocodiles, little baby alligators and crocodiles. Certainly amphibious creatures. They came from the water, they lived on the land. And they invaded all of Egypt. So, what does logic say? If these amphibious creatures come and invade all of Egypt, where are they going? Everywhere. And then millions of, of, of grasshoppers, swarms of millions of grasshoppers descend upon a land. Where are they going? Everybody catches some kind of airborne thing and they're all scratching in the chain. There's lice everywhere. Lice everywhere is lice everywhere. And so on and so forth. So if the Jewish people were not scathed or touched by a single one of these plagues, what had to have happened? And when did the miracle have to happen? Exactly. The Jewish people had to be lifted out of circulation, so to speak. They had to in some way have been changed or elevated or protected so that when a plague would come, they would be untouched. You see, I want you to understand something. Even if we are to say, listen to this carefully, even if we are to say that the animal protects evil and good, I think it's such a concept. It's such a concept. It's not, it's not as there's a, a, a number of precedences. One of the most famous precedents we have in the scripture is that there was this woman who knew that Alicia was a, a Navi and a Tzadah. Even though he was unidentified, how did she know he was a Tzadah? Because when he would walk, the little animals run away from him. They sensed that there was something there. The most modern example of it is that there was not a single animal carcass in the tsunami. Where hundreds of thousands of people died. Not a single animal died. How is that possible? Because the animals had a sense. There was a story about an elephant who was chained by his foot. And the elephant was groaning for hours. And groaning and finally uprooted the tree and ran away with the tree attached to his foot. So the animals knew what the people didn't know. So animals can know something. And it says that a true tzaddik, a true tzaddik, an animal won't move, a wild animal doesn't touch. That's why it says when Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, the lions, they sensed that this is a tzaddik, an absolute tzaddik. And because they sense the absolute tzaddik, they stayed away from him. 
And there were stories over the ages of true tzaddikim or the tzalim alikim, the image of God upon them that protected them. There's actually an interesting example of this. When there's a dead body, no matter how big and powerful a dead body is, it could, be, it could lift a thousand pounds and, uh, when he was alive. But the moment he's dead, insects come and start to eat him. Right away. If you don't, if you don't take a dead body and take care of it, human remains will become attacked immediately. Even, even not insects, rats and so on and so forth. Rodents will immediately come out and eat. Correct? You leave a baby alone. Did anybody ever find a rat eating a baby? This is a fact. How come? Because it's normal for animals to be scared of human beings. Unless animals attack. There are certain animals that attack human beings. But animals that are not attack animals have this thing to say with human beings. As Hashem says, Your terror, your fear will be on the face of all the animals of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the earth. The animals understand that this is a godly creature. That's a creature that has the children of the king. So why do wild animals attack us? Because wild animals don't understand or see the Tzalem Elikim anymore. Because we ruin our Tzalem Elikim. We darken our Tzalem Elikim. We stain our Tzalem Elikim. We obscure our divine image. And we become susceptible to that. The Jewish people in Mitzrayim, were they big Tzadikim? What do you think? Very righteous? How do you know they weren't righteous? Because it says they weren't righteous. <laughs> How do we know anything? Because it says, because it says in the Medrash and the Gemara that they were oivdei avaydezara, plain and pashut. They were actual idolaters. They were cultural Jews, by the way. They still had Jewish names. They still were beaten. They had their own club of victimhood, you know, whatever. And they they, they kept the Jewish clothes even, clothes even. But the, the Jewish language, it's all cultural. Yiddishistan. There was nothing spiritual about it. There's something to be said for cultural Judaism. It kept Judaism alive for another generation or two. But now that's finished. So either it's going to be played or nothing. There's no way for so you can't can't go on inertia. Either we're going to come either our children are coming to Yiddishkeit or they're not going to be Jewish anymore. This we're now at a crossroads. For for two generations we're sustained by cultural Judaism. I was at a wedding a little while ago. Like I told this to And uh, before the chuppah they were playing some of the songs from Fiddle on the Roof. Did I mention this? Yeah. Anyway, I figured that I, I was just thinking, I said, like, you said, like, a ripple into the crowd. Like an emotional thing, like, you know. In 20 years, they mean nothing. In fact, you could play Fiddle on the Roof and Hank is murdered. The kids are not going to connect to Fiddle on the Roof. You hear a member of other. Remember Xavier. You remember something. You have pictures. Next generation, your grandchildren? Fiddle on the Roof. Seven generations ago, some guy in Abba was living in a, in a, in a, in a shtetl with an earthen floor. What do I have to do with him? What do I have to do with me? It's either going to be Yiddishkeit or nothing. And that's the big challenge of our time, to make sure that Yiddishkeit is relevant and is real and reconnects all Yidin because without it, we cannot survive completely. But the Jewish people, that cultural Judaism, have no spirituality. So much so to the point that even when they left Mitzrayim, there were Jews who walked through the Reed Sea and they were holding idols. There was a guy named Micha who was singing to his idol. He had this, he was singing praises to his idol as he walked through the tree of Samson. You see the Jewish people after getting the Torah from God, only 40 days later, somehow reverted back to the default. Default mode when they were lost was worship an idol. And it says that the Malachim, the angel said, 
These are idolaters and these are idolaters. So if they're both idolaters, when the animal, when the wild crocodile was snapping at people, or the wild animals came, do you think that they knew a difference? They could see a difference in a Jew and a Gentile? They couldn't have. Maybe a Tzavik like Moshe Rabbein. Arna Koyinir, and be a great Tzaviki maybe. Maybe shaved lady. But the rest of the Jews were idolaters. So if they're idolaters, there was no reason for them not to be under the same sway, under the same influence of the wild forces, of the destructive forces that were released. So how were the Jewish people saved? The answer is a miracle. What is a miracle? So this is a very interesting fact. The word nes, which means miracle in Hebrew, is also related to the word nes, which means a flag or a banner. We say this every day in Adabim. We saw Nes, raise our banner. L'kabetz galu yasenu. To bring in, to gather our exiles. So a banner is something that's raised for all to see. In fact, if you're in a crowd where people have the kindred feeling of spirit, you can wave a banner and the banner somehow brings out the best in everybody. It inspires people. I don't know if it works in Canada. In the United States, the American flag has the power of evoking certain feelings. I've seen grown people cry with the American flag. Especially in the past generation, people who fought in the wars. It has this, the stripes and colors, it has a certain, it touches people. It's a banner. It's a banner. Again, I never, I, I'm not kind of long enough. I don't know. I don't know if it actually means that the people here. The point is, though, that's not. Oh, so if you raise the maple leaf flag. Yeah. Oh, so that's a different banner. It doesn't really matter. I'm not saying that the maple leaf is any less holy than the star spangled banner. The whole flag is like a. Right, so the whole Canadian flag is what, 40 years old? Sometimes in the 60s. It's irrelevant though. It's a metaphor. The point is, a banner is something that unites people. Something that elevates people. So if you can have an elevating force, an energizing force, that's, that's a banner. That serves as a banner. A perfect example would have been at the Republican National Convention last week in the United States. Sarah Palin was a banner. She energized the base. She brought out, almost like a... Like a kishif macha, you know, like a... <laughs> unbelievable, she got up there and she energized them. The Republican base was sagging and it, somehow she was... Why? You found it? You found an icon. The Democrats found an icon in Obama. They, they, he became an icon for them. He's a whole celebrity. What's the power of celebrity? If something becomes iconographic to people, it somehow has this image that it, everybody relates to the image. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. It doesn't have to make sense. The whole celebrity thing doesn't make sense. But it's an image that's familiar to everybody and somehow touches everybody. Sarah Palin has these kind of qualities. Because of everything she represents, she was able to serve as a unifying force, as an energizing force for a whole group of political people that they couldn't get it together before. So there's this idea of a banner. That you have an icon and the icon, this image, somehow brings out the best of the people. I hope you know where I'm going now. <laughs> what does it mean to be a light unto the nations? What does it mean that we're supposed to be influential? We're supposed to be on our hands and knees begging somebody, could you please listen to me? I tell a story once a guy is in the bank and he's standing on his knees and the bank manager comes in and he says, okay, so have a seat. He says, no, no, I'm quite comfortable on my knees. We're not supposed to be begging. We're not supposed to be a, a victimized people talking about anti-Semitism all day. That's not who we are. Our mission and mandate is not to protect the world from, from haters and bigots. Our mission and mandate is to make the world an illuminated place. There's a dark night out there. Goggles is a dark night. That's our job. Illuminating the dark night. How do you illuminate darkness? 
with more darkness. You beat out the darkness with sticks and stones. I'm not saying that if I had to sum it, you get away with it. No, some of neighbors are tactical gas and it's fun. But that's not who we are. We're not a neighbor's people. We're not a human rights people. What is Am Yisrael? Am Yisrael is Taylor Mitzvah. Am Yisrael is people that, that it, it serve just by being who they are to energize others. They say, look at that, wow. Gotta be in touch with them. Look at these people. People came out of nowhere from Europe, penniless, who built up communities. I supposed to impress people. By the way, it does. It does. We have a lot to be proud of. So we have a lot of good things about us. But it's those good things and it's living the way you're supposed to live that turns you into an icon, if you will. I use the word husbandly because it's not supposed to be an icon, it's an iconography. But the point is that it's a banner. A banner that we, because it's elevated, if the banner is on the floor, nobody gets inspired by it. That's why you have a flag. What do you do with it? You raise the flag. The flag has to be a flagpole. What, what's the value of a flagpole? Everybody can see it. Higher. So it says when the Abishtim, when God took the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim, what did he do for them? Before anything else happened. Even before the first plague began, what's the first thing he did for the Jewish people? He raised their banner. He raised them up as a flag. He raised us up that we should be higher. That we should stand taller. That we should tower above what's going on around us. Instead of being influenced by the world around us, we should be influenced in the world around us. Instead of Jews that are listening to CNN and that's where they're getting their morality from, a Jew should get his morality from Torah and he should dictate to the media and to the, to the little crazy world what's, what's right and what's wrong. We're supposed to be the benefactors, not the recipients. And that's how the story of the Jewish people, the birth of the Jewish people is celebrated on Pesach began nine months earlier. What was the pregnancy? How did the pregnancy of the Jewish birth begin? What was the first moment of conception of the Jewish people, the modern Jewish people? Not Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, not the Shavate, but the modern Jewish people that was born in Mitzrayim 3,300 years ago. First moment was a sudden Nisan Nashla, It wasn't that Baruch Hu brought a miracle on us. He brought a miracle. He brought a plague. He sent a plague. It was Nasrallah, it just happened. It became who we are. It was automatic. First, the Jewish people were elevated to a new space. Once they were elevated to a new space, so then Hashem was able to bring Esser Makis, Hakadosh Baruch brought Esser Makis these ten plagues upon the Messiah. So first of all, this idea is a, it's a very powerful idea, it's a very inspirational idea. It sets the tone, who are we? What are Jewish people all about? It explains to us how the Medrash is makes this distinction between Hevi HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Nasa. This is not an outside factor. This is not an, an adjunct detail. Egypt and plagues are not one and the same. It's not synonymous. If you talk to somebody about the Egypt today, the first thing they won't not say is plague unless they finish learning nursery class and it was before Pesach. Egypt will think of pyramids. Technology. They're the most advanced people. There are lots of things they'll think of before plagues. But when you think of a yid, what are you supposed to think of first? What, what does it mean to be Jewish? What it means to be Jewish is to be on display. And by the way, we like it or not, we always are on display. Jewish people are always held to a higher standard. The biggest anti-Semite holds Jews to a higher standard and doesn't realize the contradiction of it. Because deep down subconsciously, that's the truth. The truth is a Jew is held to a higher standard because the truth is a Jew is living in a higher space and a Jew is elevated. Why is everybody talking about Israel? It's a tiny piece of land. It's the most illogical thing. It doesn't make any sense. China killed a million babies here. In Sudan, they're slaughtering people till this very day. 
in Saudi Arabia and Iran and Syria they're, they're, they're gunning down homosexuals and chopping off people's hands because they stole an apple nobody says a word nobody everybody's worried about the human rights violations of Israel are all they're fixated like obsessed with Israel why are they so obsessed with Israel? because they know that really Israel is the focus of the world and subconsciously create hatred and animosity so that it comes out in a negative way but deep down when you're getting all that attention understand that there's a reason for it so what should you do? so therefore you get up like a victim and say please don't look at me like that you're looking at me great let me tell you what I have to say everybody talks about the major religions today the three major religions 40 years ago they were talking about Judeo-Christian values how many Jews are there in Canada? think about this for a second do you have any idea how many Jews are in Canada? I don't, I don't believe there's more than a quarter of a million Jews in Canada maybe 300,000 do you know how many people live in Canada? it's upwards of 30 million so what's the percentage of Jews living in Canada? 1% so what are we talking about Judeo-Christian values for? <laughs> we are 1% do you know how long it took till they would actually start talking about Islamic values? assuming that there is such a thing and that there are some actually nice ideas over there yeah but why, why do they want to admit that they spent 2,000 years trying to forget it why did you remind themselves about it why, why is it normal it's normal to be Rosh Hashanah oh Rosh Hashanah it's Rosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah was on the calendars on, on municipal calendars 40 years ago this year is the first year you're finding Eid on, or the other Muslim things on the calendar you know how many Muslims there are Every, every fifth person in the world is a Muslim today statistically why did it take so long? because we really are on this world stage because the world really looking at us because the world they, as much as they want to deny it they have to keep saying yeah but we get the values from Judaism let's go kill them now but they speak like that why? because that's the truth it's the emes it's the deep honest to goodness truth about this world is that the Jewish people before anything happens Kaddish Baruch Hu is Nisan miracles happen to the Jewish people Asada Nisan Nasu a miracle happens it's who we are it's in our blood it defines us we as Jewish people are intrinsically different distinct apart and elevated from everybody else you might have two choices either to say why don't you choose somebody else leave me alone I had enough of suffering two thousand years ago okay I'm, I'm chosen what am I chosen for how do I live up to that how do I live up to that you know, of these, by the way, of these 300,000 Jews, how many of those 300,000 Jews actually identify with something Jewish? And of those who identify with something Jewish, how many of them actually keep their witnesses? Tiny, 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 tiny percentage. And I was on this uh, television show last week, I don't know if any of you saw it. So one caller calls in and uh, says, uh, We're all Jews. So let me stop you for one second. I said, What does it mean, all Jews? It's a very racist statement. Tell me one thing I said that all Jews do. Well, all Jews they take kosher. I said, really? Really? All Jews eat kosher? Let me tell you, I'm a rabbi. I wish it were so. I spent my life trying to get Jews to eat kosher. It's not so. So tell me one thing that's all Jews. I was waiting for him to say all Jews are cheap or something like that. So I can tell him what he is. A bigot and a racist. That's what you are. I said, tell me one thing that all Jews. What? They all have black hair? No. They all have blonde hair? They all have red hair? Tell me one characteristic. The black community is identifiable. Identifiable. What is, it, what is identifiable to the Jewish community? What do they share in common? Really nothing. In a, in a literal way. What do we share in common? 
Good. This is all jokes already. When we're going into the, what do we share in common? A neshama, tight end mitzvahs. But the world still says the Jewish community. They still notice an entity in a way that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. There's no reason for them to acknowledge that or to say it or to look at it. And that's the point of this mission. The point of this mission is to tell us that we have given the power to overcome the challenges like the Maral says. The logical, rational challenges, the challenges of Teva of nature. That the Jewish people logically and rationally and naturally should not be sitting around the table and learning a mission that was written 2,000 years ago. It shouldn't be happening. It, it shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be possible. None of this should be possible. Why is it possible? It's not because a miracle once happened. Is because a transformational miracle happened. And that transformational miracle is relevant for our ancestors as it is relevant for us, as it is next and relevant for our future generations. And that is some of the things that we can learn from the first half 